you are going to find our topic and guest today where we talk about all things thought leadership. Very, very insightful. And because 2022 hasn't quite started off on the right foot for many, we're going to kick off the podcast on the right foot with a very special double episode. So get ready to listen to twice as many stories from not one, not two, but three amazing guests. In this month's episode, we'll be discussing the role of leadership, how leadership builds a culture of belonging in the workplace, as well as the importance of leading others by putting people first. And our guests today are certainly no strangers to this month's topic. Please note this episode contains stories about refugees, hardship, war, violence, and death. Some listeners may find this upsetting. You'll find that the story will have ups and downs and ultimately does end on a positive note. If at any point the content of this episode is triggering to you and you need support, please call the Employee Assistance Program. You'll find their details on iDowner or a crisis support service. You'll be listening to the story of Russia Al-Badri, a project procurement manager at Downer who was born in Iraq and has forced to make some life-changing decisions during the war. Two days after her wedding, Russia decided to leave Iraq secretly since engineer professionals were banned from leaving the country. She talks about her brother being taken away by the government for disagreeing with the current government party and her journey in finding a home here in Australia. I grew up in Iraq in the capital city of Baghdad and then left in 1997. All what I wanted is to go to a coffee shop, see some greenery, chat to girlfriends and have fun and go home safely. This didn't happen to me. In my childhood, I never felt like I belonged. When I came here to Australia, they treated you as a citizen where you're in actually home country and never been treated that. You're going to hear from Samir Yako, a site engineer with infrastructure projects who too had a very difficult childhood in Iraq. I was born in North Iraq from Mosul. It's a horrible childhood in Iraq in general. When my dad worked with this medical factory, he got it $1 per month. How we can live that? Samir received a phone call one night that would change the rest of his life. The phone call was from ISIS and the message was clear. They were planning to kill him the following day. Suddenly, I have to leave my town looking for another country. Just we needed any country to arrive to him to save. Last but not least, you'll listen to a leader who's made a difference in Samir's life in Australia. Joel Armstrong is a project manager within Infrastructure Projects, and he has been pivotal in fostering a culture of inclusion and belonging during Samir's journey. I'm from a town called Parks in central west New South Wales. I grew up on a farm. I like to go home and help my parents out as much as I can. What Samir does bring is quite a lot of maturity. You get a contrast in the team. We had some younger people who have grown up only in Australia. The perspective of the team isn't quite as well-rounded. And I think you'll see that with Samir. I guess he's probably learnt to be persistent and to not give up. That's what he can contribute to the team. And, and he definitely did that. I hope that you enjoy this chat. Hello and welcome to Share, Learn, Connect. I am Georgia Lutby and I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet today. Downer employs people across more than 300 sites, primarily in Australia and New Zealand, but also in the Asia Pacific region, South America and Africa. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and recognise and celebrate the diversity of First Peoples across all of the various lands, their ongoing cultures and connections to land, sea and community. 
first of all, thank you all very much for your time. It is such a pleasure to have you here. And I think that there's going to be a lot of listeners who are going to learn a lot from each of you and from the stories that you've got to share. I'd like to start off by getting to know each of you today. And I might start with you, Joel, please. My name is Joel Armstrong. I'm a project manager at Downer. I was previously worked on the new intercity fleet. I've in March moved over to the Southwest Metro project. Growing up, had a lot of exposure to agriculture. I went to an agricultural high school. My name is Russia and I've joined Downer three and a half years ago as a project engineer and then progressed to procurement manager. I'm a mother to beautiful three boys. They boys, teenagers, messy, but so lovely. They making my day. My name's Samir Yaku. I got married and I have three boys like Russia. <laughs> Every day it's the day it's full because you know this movement and do exercise together sometimes, play soccer. I started work with Dauna November 2018. I am very excited here when I see my children happy in this country. I want to begin by acknowledging that everyone's experiences are very different and that you are going to speak on behalf of your personal experiences and what each of you have had in the way of experience and you're not speaking on behalf of, of any other people who may have grown up in Iraq, for example. When we were talking about the podcast with Samir and I was thinking maybe Samir has got different, totally opposing to my story and this is only reflective of my own experience. I'd like to start at the beginning of each of your lives and to understand about your childhood and your upbringing. I will start with you, Joel. You mentioned you grew up on a farm. Both my parents gave us a lot of freedom and probably because of the situation they could, you know, they didn't have the concerns of what other people living in the city, you know, living next to a highway or something like that would have. I just remember it being quite a free experience, which really helped my attitude towards things. As I got older, moving to a place like Wollongong, I just remember how big that was. You know, it certainly gave me an appreciation for wide open spaces. Let's call it that. <laughs> Russia, can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and what you remember of it? Um, the only daughter with six brothers. And one of my brothers was in a boarding school and he never came home. We learned after that that he's been taken to jail because of the problems then the new party came and there was this revolution and I, all what I remember really is my mother going to jails every now and then asking people have you seen a person named this and that and we've never heard of it so my memory is honestly hard. I remember always asking my dad are we okay? Do we like the current ruler? Because everyone wants to feel belong. I honestly wanted to be belong to my home. Are we okay with this? No. So this is what I remember. I just wanted when I leave home, my brother doesn't have to come with me or my father doesn't follow me on his car without telling me that he is following me so that I come home safe. Have you heard from your brother? Oh, oh, oh no. So after the collapse of the regime in 2003, we were notified that he's been executed seven months after he was taken to jail. We never found where he was buried or anything like that. I was little, but I still remember the suffering after that we lost him because we were considered traitors because one of our brothers belonged to a party that's against the government. Yeah, we never, we never got to see him. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. No, that's okay. Thank you, Russia. Samia, can you tell me a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing? 
if you heard from anyone from Iraqi people, you will heard like Russia stories, tragedy stories. Each one has that because the condition we leave that. So I remember the Iran-Iraq wars started in 1980. I was four years. And one time when I back with my friend, me and him to talking about the war, the policy. I was six, seven years old. Why? Because the TV, television, everything is just from the war and from the political stories. After the Iraq and Iran war, we started the Glove uh, War. After the 2003 with the United States, when I childhood, around me, every time my dad, my cousin, my uncles go to the military service, 20, 30 days, then back to home, five days. I miss my dad. I miss my brother, big brother. So I live in, in Mosul and my father to encourage me to get uh, a high education, the higher education to give you a good opportunity to get a uh, future to you. Sumi, when you were in Iraq, did you know uh, what it would be like to be in Australia or did you just think that the whole world was like Iraq? 1996, when I the second class from civil engineering to live in Iraq to Canada, because my colleague told me, Samir, we will go there, good future. When I talked with my mother and my father, my mother and father is crying how you live uh, Iraq and leave us. If I left Iraq at that time, we will the government every day we will do investigate with my dad and my mother because why your son is living in Iraq. So I will do the problem for my family. So you couldn't really even talk about what it would be like elsewhere because if you moved away, it could impact the family that was left behind. Correct. Correct. Yeah. I also would like to add that most of my life in Iraq, we had a travel ban. Up until 1980, we were able to travel. After that, there was no travel allowance and no coverage from everywhere. Like what Samir was saying, all what you see on the TV is the current party talking about the war and we winning and we good and all this cheering for the military and everything. My cousin illegally smuggled a dish so that they can see the neighboring countries. She answered a question, who wants to be a millionaire? And then in 10 minutes, the security came to their house. They pick up that this family has got uh, an access to outside communications and there was big trouble. So we knew nothing about the outside world from 1980. When you were children in Iraq, what were the main values that were instilled in you? For me, just to be safe, don't go anywhere, stay at home and achieve higher education so you broaden your future. These are the two things that I do remember the most. I imagine the higher education also tied to safety. Is that a correct assumption to make, that the higher education assisted to be safer? Definitely. And like what Samir was saying, if you're a doctor, you're unlikely to join the military service because there's always shortage and you join the medical, the military med hospitals and things like that. If you're an engineer, then they put you in a spot where it's not like a war front zone. It will be at the back. Achieving higher education means safety as well. And servicing less time in the military for him, for the men, yeah. The same thing I will should be the safety because if you're talking something on the government or you have a friend, uh, any activity, political activity against the government, that's we will be a problem to you. Go to the work, to the university and back. Not touch with there, 
not connected with another people. Take care every day from one. Take care yourself, what you said, because everything, some people just listening and do the report to you. And maybe I will gone and not back to home. It sounds like that fundamental need to feel safe was at the forefront of everything. Today's episode, we're going to be talking about thought leadership. It's about influence and innovation or pioneering thinking. And it's defined as remaining in the forefront of our industry by employing the best people and having the courage to challenge the status quo. May I ask you each... What does thought leadership mean to you? And we might start with you, please, Joel. Being able to understand what the the ultimate goal of what it is that we're doing and to make sure that we understand that people's day-to-day lives need to take priority. Thank you, Joel. And Russia? Thought leadership for me is basically building creditability and trust by providing people with accurate information. And so people will respect you for that and they want to be more like you. Thank you for sharing. Samia, what does thought leadership mean to you? It's very important to me, I think, and for all the people from Slim Seeker and Refugee, especially for when a beginning with a new environment, we have to get a good leader to that. So just someone to help us, to direct us, we can do that. Thank you so much for sharing. Was thought leadership something that you were allowed to engage with when you were young growing up in Iraq? Not really. Okay, I explain to you the reason for that. So usually there is only one leader, which is the ruler. That's why you agree with. You attend the party meetings and you must belong to this party. And so really you've got no option. There is no leadership for you at all. Yes, if you not have freedom, you can be a leader because sometimes you have idea, but you are afraid. How can I express that? The big problem, many managers, many leaders has a good position on the party. Never mind about if he has a good education or not. And he a manager to you and he don't know, do anything, just give a report to the party. I'd like to give um, an example. I remember when I was in year 10, every classroom were having a leader. The classroom mates would elect a leader and it happens that I've been elected. We went to the principal office and, uh, you know, she was supposed to tell us well done and things like that. And when it came to my turn, she said, go back to your class. You're not a leader. You're a traitor because my brother was a traitor to the government. I remember when talk now. So I was a leader at year six when the principal school, Samir, if you heard any person to talk something on the government, come to tell me. So I back to home, I talked with my dad, my student chose to meet the leader because I am clever, smart. But the principal asked me, this is task to you every day. If you hear something from your student. So my dad told me, Samir, take care. Don't tell anything. You are student. Joel, I'd like to bring you into this. I imagine this is very different to your childhood and growing up at school here in Australia. Yes, certainly. I often think about the people that have influenced me and I often think about teachers through early childhood. Thinking back, I can't think of being told something that I don't agree with. 
hearing the different views of people like hearing Samir, hearing Rasha. I was very lucky to have been given that advice and be led the way that I was from a younger age. I asked Samir, you mentioned that your son is being put forward for school captain. How does that make you feel? Does that make you feel excited for him or does it bring back sort of some flashbacks from your childhood? The first thing led me to leave the Iraq to get a good opportunity for my children. Going back from work to home, I am tired. When I see all my boys, it's happy, excited. That makes me happy. Samir was explaining to me one day about his younger son. I think you said that you were talking to him in Arabic and he's like, oh, what, what did you say, Dad, or something like that? And he's yeah. like, why, why, do I, why do I need to learn Arabic? It just goes to show how quickly things change. And, you know, even hearing Samir's advice back to him in 20 years' time, you don't know what's going to be happening. You need to take this opportunity. You might need to help someone and learning that language now while you've got the opportunity can really make all the difference later on. Thank you, Joel. Every time you help me. (laughs) (laughs) And likewise, Samir. (laughs) I'd love to know now a little bit about the moment that you made the decision or were forced into the decision of deciding to leave Iraq. I was really struggling with my life. So my target was not to get married in Iraq. I wanted to leave. My friend's mom, her son lives in Malaysia. wanted to get married so she recommended me and then they come to my workplace in Iraq. My mother-in-law she nodded to my father-in-law like yeah she took some boxes. <laughs> I had a couple of phone calls with my husband in Malaysia and so we kind of ticked major boxes like you know there are expectations what he wants to see his wife or what I want to see from him, my husband and from the time I met my husband for the first time until I got married and left Iraq was 15 days only. Like this is you guys in Australia, you stay years with your partners before you decide. For me, it was 15 days. I left Iraq illegally because I was in Geneva and they were not uh, allowed to leave the country. They're professionals because there was so much shortage. So then I left Iraq to to join my husband in Malaysia and then you were thinking okay it's going to get better you come back but then years after years and it's it's it's, it's worsen then you think okay I've got to make a move and you search for places and things like that we applied for migration in Australia under the rural migration scheme I did all my qualification recognition and then I was accepted How logistically did you leave Iraq if it was illegal to leave? So basically, you go to Mosul, where Samir from, so you can travel by bus. This is all within the country. Then you enter the Kurdish zone, which is the north part of Iraq. So the Kurdish are always rebellious to the government. You talk to smugglers. There is a bridge between Iraq and uh, Turkey. Then you're in Turkey, and then you've got your passport, the Iraqi passport, and then we booked for Malaysia. Did you get to say goodbye to your family? I had a proper wedding but it was only selective people because we didn't want people to know that my husband is here because like Semi was saying everyone is working for the government so you really don't have a freedom to say things no one from my friend or workplace knew about me because they will find out and it could it could be ruined as well my family were very very upset but they also understand my will because I really want freedom want my kids better life Samir, I'm going to jump over to you now. Can you tell me a little bit about what your life was like immediately before you 
made the decision to leave? After 2003, the war between the United States and Iraq and the government is gone and all the Iraqi people hope the good government we will come and the freedom. The freedom come after 2003. But what's the freedom? To kill one another because you have different religion? I will call you. Because you speaking another language, we will kill you. 2004 started something new in Iraq. It is local war. So maybe my neighbor, different religion, he will kill me. One time is the mayor of Mosul. He gave to me the certificate because I built a park design. He told me, congratulations, Samir. You good work, you good design. You are a win, a certificate. And then you have a check, $250,000. So when I go to my manager for municipality, I told him, sir, I got a good certificate from the Maya on Nineveh and I get a check. So tomorrow I needed to go to the Mosul to receive. He told me, take care, Samir. Maybe this is due to kill you there. I couldn't go that because me and my sir, my manager, guessed this is maybe something to do when I go to kill me there. As I mentioned on my story, I got a phone call one night because you are engineer at municipality, we will call you. After that, I decided to leave Iraq. I decided to leave to Kurdistan and I wait one year. Maybe I hope that Iraqi government to return back my town, but I see no anything seriously from the government. That's time I decided to leave Iraq at 2015, 24th of October to Jordan and I applied with the UNICEF to get a good country for my kids the first, second to me. The lack of trust or the inability to trust because of the not being able to trust the government must have been exceptionally hard and not being able to trust your neighbours and your friends and family. I can only imagine. So one day you get a call that says you're going to be killed and so you up and leave this house and this life that you've built in Iraq. Honestly, that's not easy when I remember that. This time I am thinking for my family, what's happened with my family, my kids, because I have to take care from my children and my family. Can you tell me a little bit about what were your first impressions of Australia? What did you think of the country compared to where you'd been? I remember I arrived to Australia, SSI, the service for the refugee, took me in a vehicle and gave me a phone number. I saw some construction work and the train and the buses. I didn't uh, try the train in Iraq all my life. Oh, this is excited. And all the green. So the landscape was very different. What was something that you did for the first time when you came to Australia that you never knew of, that you never thought you could do or you never knew existed? I saw my kids is just uh, happy. My parents with me, my father has two stroke brain and took him for medical test. It has a weight like that. It's very important health. At Iraq, just we work to get to live, but here to work to get a good health, the health, then the world. I feel I born again. Thank you. So it sounds like a lot of those first for you was the safety and security and the healthcare and a lot of things that probably Australians take very much for granted. Yes, exactly. If you needed something, you can go to the hospital. Here is the system. All the people is equal. Russia. One thing that I noticed was the multicultural. So 
you see so many different faces and races and it seems like they get along with each other. So like what Samir was saying, in Iraq we've got few different religion and sectors and cultures and because of the regimes we were never encouraged to love and live in harmony. But in Australia they all live as one country. Samia, I'd like to now move to when you got appointed the role at Downer and what your experience was to get the role here and what your first experiences were when you started. Honestly, here when I arrived to Australia and go to the job active, one employee there, Samir, don't try to recognize your qualification or to get engineering work here because it's very difficult. That's disappointment to me do. Then I started to work as a volunteer and to attend the shelf and course. Then I engaged with Miller Tafe to study building and construction. Maybe I get a supervisor or something. After that, I got a call from Karasikal Dauna. Uh, need to do interview with you. So I did interview, then I accepted and started with NIF. So honestly, I feel my life is returned back to me. And I started to forget what's happened on past with me. Thanks God, I met a good people with NIF team, support to me and push to me. Sometimes I think no one understand me because I couldn't to express my idea, but all, oh, okay, Samir, maybe catch some word from me to understand me. Then Joel started to explain me how can I write email because overseas all the paper, official paper work by hand. He was very patient with me. So when I have some question, I return back to him. Joel, I'd love to hear your first experiences of meeting Samir and him joining the team and, and what your side of that. The, the first thing that I remember when Samir was joining the team, it was quite a big deal because our project director at the time made sure that everybody was in there. So this person from Career Seekers came and explained that it was going to be Samir Yaka that was joining the team, gave us a bit of a background on what Samir's story was. He mentioned we should be very careful about talking about Samir's past. A week or two later, Samir came in. Because I've worked in rail now for a while, I'm aware of the things that aren't intuitive. And if it's not explained to you, you're not going to have any chance of knowing what it is. Being aware of that helped me work with Samir. And Samir was always quite good at explaining whatever he wasn't clear on and he was always good at making sure that he was clear on what he needed to do before he started it. When I was 25, I decided to go overseas. My sister booked me aeroplane tickets to Guatemala. I didn't know where Guatemala was, but I was booked in to study Spanish. I just had knee surgery. Instead of being over there and, you know, going hiking and doing everything, I actually put quite a lot of effort into learning Spanish. At the end of the 10 weeks, I had to do this exam and the person who ran the school came over and started marking it. And I just remember the look on his face and he was like, you know, you've been here for 10 weeks with a tutor, a one-on-one tutor for four hours a day. And it's like you've learned nothing. In Australia, anyone that doesn't have English as a first language would probably have gone through the experience of when you're trying to explain yourself in another language, it's so frustrating. With that in mind, I guess that's the approach. Whenever Samir had questions, some of the things that I was aware of to try and account for. How does it feel hearing Samir's story and hearing that you made such a difference to his career at what would have been a challenging time for him? Yeah, that's obviously nice if we were able to help Samir and Samir was able to help us. I think I would have been the same with anyone. I hope that I would have treated Samir the same as what I would treat other people. It's nice that we were able to put systems in place and explain roles in enough detail that people were comfortable with what they had to do and felt like they were contributing. It sounds like 
like you did really pride yourself on playing to people's strengths and that that's something that you do a lot is identifying what each of the individuals in your team's strengths are and making sure that those are played too. Is that something that you would agree with? The experiences that Samir has had, they haven't all been positive experiences, especially when like leaving Iraq and coming to Australia. But when you look at the other people that are in the team, some of them will have grown up in Australia and have no idea of what's happened in other parts of the world. And I must admit, although I've had Samir and Russia explain it, I don't have an understanding of what that really feels like. I can only listen to it and imagine it. But what Samir does bring is obviously the life experience. They talk about having diversity in teams and I think that's what worked well for us. With the other people that we had in the team, like Samir just mentioned, people like Andrew Bedwani and Abdul Aziz, they really facilitated having an environment where people can make contributions depending on what their experience is. Thanks, Joel. Was there someone in your early career who you saw as a mentor or someone who guided you through your early career in the same way that you did for Samir when he joined Downer? In particular, there was one person when I was starting out in construction who always emphasised the importance of taking the time to listen to people, whether that be, you know, your own colleagues or subcontractors to actually understand where there is a problem and then acting on that, understand the problem before you try and fix it. Rush, I'd like to bring you in and understand, was there anyone who in your career or in your life has made a really big difference to you and what did they do to do so? When I first arrived in Australia in my first job in Mount Isa, Peter Osborne, who was one of the directors, he actually flew from uh, Warwick to Mount Isa and he spent a whole week with me explaining to me how it works, what we need to do, what sort of inductions we do in Australia and how we execute the job. He had a trust in me that I've got the qualifications and the potential to contribute to the company. I used to do my calculations and I fax it to him and then he would review my work and he would have an input and tell me, yes, keep going. Oh, no, you're missing this and that. That was a lot of support. This is why I love Australian. They actually have you on board and give you 100% support. When I had my uh, second child in Mount Isa, the nurse in the hospital came to me and she said, I've got a troop outside waiting in the hospital to see you. The whole office team came with so much love and flowers and chocolate. And so they surrounded me. I'm alone having a baby in a rural area, but then I had about 11 people surrounding me. This is kind of a support that I get from the leaders, but also from the team around me, helping me both technically, socially, and I guess along the way with my life. I love that story about the whole community rallying around you. I think, especially at a time of having a baby or at a time of change in life, it makes such a difference, doesn't it? How do you pay that forward with those that work with you now? Is that something that you've now taken and gone, I'm going to make sure I do this for others because it meant so much to me? 100%. When I came here to Australia and when you get all this support, like even I remember the flood in 2013, there's only one way to give back. And so I always teach my kids to love Australia. Like when we had the drought, always, we love Brisbane, we love our water, okay, because they were little and they wanted splashing waters. I always teach them to do the right thing by the country. Every day I go to work, other side of my day, I say, this is for God's sake and to help the community to return some of the favour that they've given me. Thank you so much, Russia, Samia. I think, how can I return back this thing to give to me? So I have to do something to support and build and improve of this country that opens hand to me, to me, to my family and other refugee. After I got a job with Downa, I started to feel happy. But at the same time, I faced many challenges to do, not just I got a job. 
how can I improve myself, my skills with a new system, with new rules. I hope all the people in Iraq or in Syria or in Yemen to come to Australia or other country to feel uh, safe. We have to live in this life one time. So Australia, it's give us this is life to see here. Samir, I think the other thing with George's question about how you pay it forward, you support your family, you support your parents as well. And even with the project that you've moved on to now, you've been able to take what you learnt on NIF and apply that on Southwest Metro. And from what Russia's saying, it's the same thing for her as well. Because they were given support, then they can offer the support to those people that are close to them as well. So I definitely think that's the case with Samir. We talk a lot about diversity, but I'd like to understand to you what does diversity in the workplace mean? I'd like to take it a step further as well about what inclusion means and what it's like to be included. And that might be where people are understanding where you've come from and what your past is, or it might be people understanding your religious rituals, for example. I represent a diversity, okay, left, right and centre, okay, from an English background. And my race is different to the Aussie race here and practice Islam. When I came to Dauna, they respected that completely. And first thing I was told that by Marie Sky, she said, to me we've got a quiet room and you can use it as a prayer room they acknowledge the difference that i bring in diversity is about including everyone okay so they are different but we're all together in australia because there are so many different people so many different religions so many different sexual orientation and things like you actually if they accept you you've got to accept them so this is one thing that you learn i look different i wear headscarf sometimes i'm boring the food i eat the way i practice with the way I look so but they still accept me so that's why I need to accept them. With my background people often say that Australia is a multicultural society where I came from it wasn't quite as multicultural it was only when I moved to Sydney that I got an idea for what a multicultural society is we're delivering construction projects and that's for community if the community is made up of a range of people then it's important that the interests of those people are represented and then in some way accounted for or catered to. Joel what lessons have you learned or lessons would you pass forward to other people in a similar situation who are working within a diverse workforce? It is important, I think, wherever possible to offer support where we can. At the end of the day, if we can help them, they can help us. And I guess recognise that experience from overseas and people doing things different. They'll have some good ideas on how things can be done differently. And if we're open to that, then all of a sudden you might be changing things for the better as well. Thank you very much, Joel. Russia, what advice or lessons learned would you give? I would advise every migrant or refugee to actually have a go at everything they throw at them. Give it your best, have a go, ask questions, and not to be shy by your culture, your broken language. Just show the people in front of you that you're willing to contribute. For the diversity, I would encourage the HR donor to approach people and to give them the opportunity. I have big faith that we all want to show respect and being thankful to the country that adopted us and giving us the chance to work. Thanks, Russia. And if you could sum it up in a sentence or two, if you were to go back and tell the Russia who is living in Iraq one thing, what would it be? 
you don't have to talk with a low voice because you've been brought up as a female to be shy and not to express yourself because you are female and you should really always represent the feminine. Speak up, speak respectfully and speak facts and you're equal as the other gender. So I agree what Russia said and the life is very important and this is priority to us as well as the education here. Maybe after 60 years old, I can study and I get the opportunity for uh, completed my education. The third lesson I learned here, I have goal and I have to work hard to achieve my goal. Maybe need to me a pension, two years, three years, but at the end, I will get it opportunity. Thank you, Samir. And what would be, in one sentence or two sentences, what would you tell your younger self living in Iraq? I need to left Iraq from my younger, not like after 40. This is the first point. And the second thing is my family. Here it's when I saw my family happy, so that's feel too happy. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but exactly. Sometimes the benefit of hindsight, you look back and whilst you went through some things that were really awful everything was going to be okay and whilst you can't erase the memories you've got a new life and you've been able to have some opportunities Samir and Russia, your stories have both been described as stories of survival or stories of rebirth is this how you see it and why Definitely coming to Australia, you reborn again because you can work, you can, you know, be in normal health and your kids can have a normal life. So it's definitely, this is how I see it. And it's changed my life. It's the best decision of my life. And I am so happy and grateful for Australia to accept me as a migrant and we will keep giving back to them. We needed to get a place safe to live ourselves with our family. And thank you for Storalia to give us a good opportunity to be Storalian people and give us equal treatment with other people. So this is different life and a new environment to start a new life with the safe for my family. Both Russia and Samir talked so much about how grateful they are to be here. But I also wanted to say to them, we are so grateful to have people like you here. People who share their stories and who are wonderfully resilient and who are actively contributing to their communities and to their workplaces. So thank you all so much for your time and for sharing your stories and your experiences. I have really just, my eyes are so wide open and thank you very much for everything, for sharing, for your openness. I'm sure it's not easy to tap into those memories and to to go back there, but I think it's really going to add a lot of value to people. So thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to speak. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. It was a lot longer than any of the other episodes that we have recorded, but there is so much that we wanted to share about these stories. I found the stories about Iraq really eye-opening. And whilst we here in Australia know that there are things happening overseas, to think about what it's like for the individuals living there, I could only imagine what it would be like to one day receive a phone call that changes your life, where you have to leave the country that you live for your own safety with nothing. And to then come to a whole new country, it would be absolutely one of the hardest things that you had to do. And then to have the positive outlook that Samir now 
now has is just incredible. I can't believe it. And to hear Russia's story about her experiences growing up and how her childhood was tainted with sadness because of what was going on around her and her appreciation for coming to Australia and the opportunities that she has here. Things that we here take for granted. Hearing Joel sharing his story about how it was just another day in the office for him. He was just doing what anyone else would do in his words to help out a colleague but to Samir that meant the world it meant that he felt comfortable where he was and that he was able to deliver on the project and he was able to show his true worth which from all accounts from Joel is a lot one thing that I think is really important to note at the end of this story is that it feels a bit like a movie where it has a sad beginning and a happy ending but there is so much more to these stories while Samir and Russia have both described positive experiences accessing employment here in Australia, it is so important to note that unfortunately, this is not the experience of every migrant. I have no doubt that there are challenges every day for many of the migrants who come to Australia and who are learning about our culture and who are speaking in a second or a third or a fourth language. As a society, we still have a way to go when it comes to meaningful inclusion of refugees, asylum seekers and others with diverse backgrounds. That is the reason why diversity and inclusion initiatives are so important. I found this story to show what value people can add to the business, what they can add to your community, what they can add to you as a friend if you take the moment to get to meet them. There's a saying that goes, never underestimate the value and the difference that one individual can make to change the world, because that's all that ever has made a difference. And then it makes me think, what next? What can I do for others? And I would encourage all of you to think about that. What can you do? Downer has a number of wonderful diversity and inclusion initiatives, which you could become a part of. It could be something within your local community. It could be reaching out to someone in your team who you don't know the story of and asking if they feel comfortable sharing their story. Understanding and education is so important. It could be being the voice for someone who doesn't have a voice themselves or who doesn't feel comfortable speaking out. What you walk past is what you accept. So making sure that you are being an advocate for those around you. Thank you so much for listening. And before we finish up, I would like to take the time to acknowledge the Yuggera people, the traditional custodians of the land where this episode has been recorded. Make sure you tune into next month where I speak to a brand new guest about a brand new topic as we continue to share, learn, connect. This podcast is now available on your favourite podcast app. Please share it with your friends and make sure to subscribe. And what that means is that you will get our episodes as soon as they drop. Our producers are Darby Martinelli and Melanie Blows and I'm Georgia Lutby. Thank you for listening.